Good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Islam is the second largest world religion, yet people often don't know much about it. In the U.S., there are more than 3.5 million Muslim adults and children. And here in Memphis, we have about 20,000 Muslim residents, and we're also home to the Memphis Dawa Association. In the American imaginary, Muslim women wear hijab and are oppressed because of this modest fashion. But is that really the case? This morning, we're talking about Muslim women in America, as well as modest fashion. And to do so, I'm joined by Dr. Farah Turnaker. Dr. Turnaker was recently promoted to full professor of sociology, the first woman person of color at full rank in sociology at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York, and the first Muslim woman in the college to be promoted to full professor. She is also Lemoyne College's first woman of color director of gender and women's studies. She teaches sociology of gender, feminist theories, and race, class, and gender. Dr. Turnaker has a master's in religious studies and a PhD in sociology. She is the author of the book, Intersectionality in the Muslim South Asian American Middle Class Life, Lifestyle Consumption Beyond Halal and Hijab. Her journal article publications include Feeding the Muslim South Asian Immigrant Family in Feminist Food Studies, Constructing the Halal Kitchen in the American Diaspora, and Hijab and the Abrahamic Traditions in Sociology Compass. She also has two forthcoming publications, Ethical Consumption and Modest Fashion, and The Changing Face of Arranged Marriage in Real Life and Online in the Muslim Diaspora. Her next book project looks at how colorism and fat phobia shape modest fashion in popular culture. Welcome, Dr. Farah Turnaker. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us this morning. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Yes, I am so excited because, you know, I think Folks often have limited knowledge about Islam and about Muslims, and we often rely on media to kind of fill in the blanks in our knowledge. And sometimes that might not be the best place um, for us to kind of, you know, rely on our understanding uh, of people and of society in general. And so I'm just so happy that we get to have this chat this morning. Thank you. I'm so looking forward to it. Yes. Now, I mentioned that, of course, as you know, Islam is the second largest world religion um, with close to 2 billion adherents, um, making up about a quarter of the global population. Um, but again, within the U.S., there is often limited understanding of the religion and of Muslims. And so I'm wondering, just to kind of get us into this conversation that we're about to have, could you tell us a little bit more about the U.S. Muslim population? Sure. And as you mentioned, we have more than three and a half million Muslims in American society. And, and what's interesting is, you know, as you mentioned, the stereotypes that we get from popular culture, as well as media, often represent, you know, Muslims as um, only Arab and this kind of monolithic understanding of Muslims as Middle Eastern and, and or Arab. But in, uh, but in the United States, at least, uh, and as well as globally, that is not the majority, right? In the United States, you know, 
one fifth, over one fifth of Muslims are actually of African American um, background, and the largest immigrant group in the United States is actually South Asian, coming from Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and other parts of Asia, actually not Middle Eastern. So, and in addition to that, though there is a significant portion of Muslims in America that are new immigrants coming after, you know, there was a, a significant wave after 1965 and another significant wave after the 1980s, large scale Muslim immigration in the United States actually can be traced back to much earlier than, you know, even the 1960s. Um, if we look at, you know, er, um, early, early um, uh, communities of black Muslims that are, you know, that have been in the United States for many decades as well as early, um, earlier even Arab immigrants when we look at the communities in Michigan, for example. So therefore, the American Muslim population is incredibly diverse racially, including African American, Asian, South Asian, Middle Eastern, Eastern European from Bosnia, white converts, and others. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you for that. Because like you said, I think folks often have kind of one image of who Muslims are. And I just love all this information you've just shared with us already to help us continue to expand for folks who are maybe, you know, have curious and have questions. And I think it's important too, because as I mentioned, you know, here in Memphis, which I know a lot of the listeners are Memphis based, we do have a, a small but growing population of Muslim residents and, you know, homes to the Memphis Dawa Association, which whose goal is really to educate, right, our community, Memphis and the broader Mid-South about what Islam is, who Muslims are, and also very much engaged in community outreach and community service as well. Um, so I think this just helps folks become a little bit more familiar, again, because I think in our, you know, most recent history, in the U.S. anyway, we've seen, um, Islam as a religion become very um, mis uh, maligned, right, seen in a very negative light and really focused on um, some extremism within, you know, folks who practice the religion. So I really appreciate you just kind of breaking down, you know, who Muslims are in the U.S. and already kind of debunking um, kind of this image that I'm sure a lot of folks have just, again, based on these media representations. Um, I just want to spend a second on thinking about media representation, and I'm wondering um, if you could tell us a little bit about how you see uh, Muslim women being represented in media, and if there are even spaces where you see kind of positive or accurate representations in the media. Sure. Well, historically, especially I would say until about 2010, 2015, we saw a lot of problematic, both historical and Western stereotypes of how Muslim women are represented as oppressed, that they don't have any autonomy or agency, and often reduced to this idea that, you know, also that all Muslim wear, women wear hijab, and that's a tool of oppression, right? And then, um, and so we saw that not only in American media, we can look at, you know, uh, movies, especially before 2010. Um, we can look at episodes of shows like Homeland and even like representations of the Muslim character on ER wearing hijab, you know. But then um, in the last, I would say in the last three to seven years, we've seen some changes both in terms of television as well as social media, where we can look at Instagram, as well as, of course, Facebook. And of course, now, you know, young scholars are also looking at TikTok, um, where we've seen some changes in terms of representation. Partially, this has to do with, um, 
I think American Muslims getting a seat at the table in terms of how these characters are written and produced and directed. Um, also, we're seeing really interesting representations, not just coming out from the United States when we look at shows like Rami or, um, you know, uh, looking at H Hassan Minaj's comedy, um, but we're also looking at important shows, I think, coming out of um, Britain, like We Are Lady Parks, that is about a Muslim punk band where one of the characters doesn't wear hijab. You know, one wears niqab, two wear hijab. We have um, Sort Of, which is a Canadian show that has um, a queer Pakistani character. So we're, you know, we're seeing um, some changes just in the last couple of years. And then, of course, in social media, where um, I think we have to, you know, as sociologists, as scholars, but then also, as well as folks that look at popular culture, looking at social media seriously in terms of a place where Muslim women can create their own representations, right? And I think that's really important, not just in terms of Muslim women, but women of color, Asian women, Black women, Arab women. This is a place where they can tell their own stories and create their own narratives and negotiate their identities, as well as um, a place for BIPOC women to create community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. And we're going to spend more time talking about social media a little bit later. Um, but as you mentioned, I do love that in the past kind of recent handful of years, we've seen expanding representation of a variety of formerly marginalized populations in media, right? So here, of course, specifically thinking about Muslim women. And I think that's one, I guess, positive, especially as we see, um, you know, different streaming services like a Netflix, of course, <laughs> or others that are kind of picking up a lot of a variety of shows and from a variety of showrunners um, versus kind of the legacy media stance on some of the representation that we've seen kind of a few decades ago. So I think that's definitely a positive. And for folks who are listening, who are interested in kind of checking out some, you know, some different shows, I love all of the different mentions you just made. So hopefully folks can um, kind of diversify what they're watching as well. Yes, definitely. No, and I and I do feel like you're right. The new streaming services like um, We Are Lady Parts, I believe, is on Peacock. And you know, um, you know, when you're looking at sort of and the representation of a you know a queer Pakistani character, we're looking at HBO um, HBO Max. And in that show in particular, you know, they have a you know um, the writer or somebody at the writer's table that is part of that story mm -hmm. is able to help tell that story. And it's not just predominantly, you know, white uh, male writers, directors, and producers. And I think, and I think that's important. And I think there's been a lot of efforts, especially um, in the last three years, and and telling stories of marginalized voices and television as well as movies. And as you said, um, these increase, you know, increasing these different um, platforms, I think, allows for an, a larger array of representation. Mm -hmm. Yes, because, you know, one thing that you've mentioned is how in some of these shows, some of the characters, they wear hijab, some don't. And I think that's really important, again, just to show the range of how Muslim women, right, wear hijab or don't and kind of what that might mean for them outside of kind of this Western view of Muslim women must wear hijab. And because they wear hijab, they are oppressed, right? And that has often been a stance that we've seen in media and 
particularly around some folks, I guess, um, saying they're championing, championing women's rights, <laughs> uh, but also kind of divorced from understanding um, what role hijab plays for Muslim women who do choose um, to wear hijab. And so I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about um, the meaning of hijab for Muslim women and how we can think about this outside of this very Western view of, oh, this is, you know, women being oppressed. Yes. Well, obviously, I mean, I'm saying obviously, but in the United States and in the research on North America, both in, in the United States as well as Canada, you know, the sociological research, of course, shows us that, you know, hijab is a choice that Muslims, uh, Muslim women make specifically in the US and Canada. And that choice is often tied to several different reasons. Um, some of it is uh, ideological, theological, the belief that you know, covering your hair is, you know, is modest in terms of how you represent yourself. But some of, some of the reasons that um, current scholarship has shown for why Muslim women um, wear hijab is not just for religious reasons, but sometimes it's also for cultural reasons to show that they're connected to a Muslim or immigrant community, right? And sometimes it's for familial reasons because they are part of an extended family where um, covering your hair, um, if it's by hijab or if it's, you know, maintaining niqab or burqa or wearing um, the, a thinner um, fabric that some South Asian Muslim women wear called the dupatta, you know, sometimes that can be connected to culture, community, family. And, um, and so it's not necessarily connected to a political ideology, you know, and so even in the, um, the sociological studies that have been done, been, been done um, since the 1990s and 2000s, and even looking at my own work in my recent book, um, you know, I found that when it comes to Muslim women in the United States wearing hijab, you know, those motives are often because of uh, religious ideologies coming from the Quran, this idea that Muslim women want to dress modestly, you know, but also as a choice. And then, of course, as I said, the second reason sometimes is tied to culture as well as community. And, you know, uh, Muslim women are representing a specific cultural um, identity, if it is Pakistani or Middle Eastern or um, African-American Islam, you know. And so I think what's important to understand here is that there are multiple reasons why Muslim women may choose to wear hijab in the West in particular. And so when we look at Muslim Americans, um, you know, that this is a choice. It does not represent oppression, right? And in fact, some of the research suggests that wearing hijab can often, you know, be a form of liberation where some Muslim women believe that when you cover your hair that you no longer feel objectified, right? And you're no longer reduced to being orientalized or being seen as, you know, um, you know, as a, as a, uh, symbol of beauty, you know, and, and so there's also that, you know, that often it can give a, a Muslim woman even more, you know, more uh, 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 autonomy and more choices in terms of the decisions they make. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that understanding of how hijab can be a source of, of freedom and freedom from a very specific uh, male gaze or even, you know, that Western gaze. And as you were saying that, you know, I was really thinking about how often that I've been out in, you know, in, in, the, in public and really felt that people were sexualizing me in a certain way or exoticizing me in a certain way. And I could see how wearing hijab could be like that sense of, of safety, or at least that sense of autonomy in I get to decide how I'm presenting myself to the world. And so I've never really thought about it in that way. Uh, but I think 
you know, especially in this time of increasing anti-Asian hate in particular, I'm thinking about how hijab could be very much a sense of, of safety and security and, and agency, like you mentioned. Yes, definitely. Definitely. It often can create more options, you know, in terms of a woman um, feeling, you know, safe in public spaces, you know, and, you know, there's some research that goes back, you know, in terms of uh, earlier scholarship on Muslim women from um, both Moroccan as well as um, um, North African and Middle Eastern scholars looking at, you know, even Muslim women in public spaces that wear hijab that often affords, you know, more um, autonomy and agency, but also because they're no longer going to have, as you said, the male gaze, you know, thinking about, um, you know, some of the early research that looks at patriarchal social structures and where hijab can often be a way to often neutralize that patriarchy in terms of thinking about women being reduced to kind of a sexual object. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Farah Turnaker, Professor of Sociology at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, New York. And we've been talking about Muslim women um, and modest fashion. And something you mentioned before the break was that um, thinking about how Muslim women kind of think about themselves, those who wear hijab or don't wear hijab, and how that isn't necessarily um, an indication of their own politics, right? You talked about the different reasons why Muslim women might wear hijab or not, um, cultural or familial reasons. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the politics portion, both how uh, Muslim women are, are thinking about themselves politically and some of the political decisions or political views that they hold. Well, I mean, in the United States, when we think about Muslim women and Muslims as like a political block, right, they have historically voted Democrat, right? And so that's probably not surprising when we look at the majority of Asian Americans, as well as Arab Americans and African Americans, right, and thinking that those make up large populations of the Muslim population in the United States. And so when we think about Muslim women, uh, politically, you know, um, especially since the 2000s have been, you know, democratic voters in terms of thinking about national politics, right. Um, and then when we get into thinking specifically about, you know, community politics, as well as um, global politics, you know, there's a lot of variation. And I think that's what I, I need to emphasize is that Muslim women are not a monolithic group. And um, some of the real distinctions when we start talking about American Muslim women are going to be not just in terms of the diversity of race, but there's also going to be diversity in terms of class. And I think that's really, really important in terms of thinking um, about politics, right? Because even when we think about the overall Amer American women and how do American women vote, right? Sometimes we can see how class as well as race may play a role in that. Um, and so um, when we talk about Muslim women, even though historically they voted Democrat, um, I think when we look at class as well as race, um, that helps us understand some more of the nuances. And then also in terms of generation, because when we're talking about immigrant Muslims, right? And if we're talking about Muslim immigrant women coming from South Asia, versus uh, the Middle East or the Arab world versus, you know, um, Africa, you know, we're going to get some variation there as well. And so, um, of course, um, when we're talking specifically about South Asian um, Muslim American women, and we're talking about, you know, predominantly Indian or Pakistani, 
American Muslim women, a lot of them, their parents who came over in the 1960s, 70s, or 80s, you know, a significant portion of them did become middle class and part of this, you know, um, often problematic model minority, you know, stereotype. And so it's always assumed, you know, that they're all doing very well academically as well as professionally. Um, but then more recent waves of South Asian Muslim immigrants, you know, have also in included um, refugees coming from Bangladesh as well as other places. And just like Asian Americans in general are a very, very actually diverse. And I think, you know, this is one of the challenges we have, even when we think about the last um, two and a half years and anti-Asian American hate, um, hate crimes against Asian Americans um, rising. And often um, those folks that are not Asian American not seeing the differences, right? And they're often flattened in terms of their identities. We see that in the larger Asian Americans population, but also in terms of thinking about East Asians versus South Asians. And so um, I am careful in terms of making any generalizations in terms of politics, because I do need to be more specific when I'm thinking about class, region, specific ethnicities, um, when I'm thinking about political ideologies and how that might match up with modesty norms. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important. And again, just thinking about how often, you know, Muslims are made into a monolith. Um, and I just love how you kind of broke down the many different ways that Muslims are thinking about different political issues in the same way that any other kind of general, um, you know, racial group or gendered group or class group is thinking about these topics in very, very distinct ways, right? Based on their own positionality. And I think that's so important. Um, one thing that we started to talk about earlier, kind of mentioned earlier, um, was social media and how that is, of course, playing a role in Muslim women's lives, as it is in a lot of other groups' lives. But I think it might be some, doing something unique for Muslim women. Um, and so I would love for you to kind of talk to us a little bit about how Muslim women and the women that you have, you know, spoke with and interviewed, um, how have they been able to, to leverage social media to represent themselves? Sure. Well, my recent book that just came out a couple of months ago, I spent a whole chapter talking about the significance of social media. Specifically, I looked at um, Instagram as well as lifestyle blogs, because I felt like these are places where Muslim women, as well as other, um, I would say other women of color, are able to really create their own identities, but also, you know, they're able to represent themselves. And in particular, I think, um, as I said, looking at social media is significant because this is a place where we can look at how um, Muslim women are building their own communities, right? If, and obviously local and global. And so looking at kind of the themes of, um, you know, globalization and how it is on Instagram or Twitter that you're able to create um, a global community of Muslim women, right, that are interacting. Um, secondly, I looked at social media because I also felt like this is an important place where we can look at social norms around modesty. And if it's also negotiating those norms in terms of not only if Muslim women wear hijab, even if they don't wear hijab, how do they negotiate still dressing modestly? Those that choose not to wear hijab, if they're still choosing to wear loose clothing, long sleeve clothing, right? And also um, creating um, also forms of resistance using social media um, in terms of ma knowledge making that happens amongst when Muslim women themselves are creating these norms rather than what we see happening 
in terms of you know brick and mortar mosques and Islamic community centers throughout the United States, where in those spaces they're often still very patriarchal, where you know um, women cannot be or you know be ordained as an imam, so we still have uh, pre predominantly male leadership. And these online spaces, Muslim women can kind of renegotiate, you know, knowledge making in terms of thinking about modesty, and so. Um, so I do feel that in, uh, social media is really, really powerful there because I think through even something like modest fashion or just fashion in general, you know, women are able to, you know, create communities that are online, both local and global, also challenge, you know, dominant norms around, you know, how to dress, right, renegotiate this, but also um, how you how Muslim women dress can also often be forms of resistance, right? When we think about when we go think about globally, and we, you're looking at Instagram and Muslim influencers on the global platform on Instagram or TikTok, you can also see how you know hijab can be a form of resistance when we have these hijab bans going on in France or Germany or in or even just like in the last I think 12 hours India, right? Um, and so, um, and then also lastly, I would say modest fashion can also be a form of political solidarity. When I was looking, um, when I was finishing up my research for the book last summer, no, sorry, this first summer after George Floyd's murder, um, one of the things that I observed is a lot of the influencers that I was looking at Muslim influencers showed solidarity with Black Lives Matter, you know? And if it was wearing a t-shirt or, you know, um, you know, or having a poster in the background, you know, um, and these uh, all, often these were South Asian or Arab Muslim women showing solidarity with Black Lives Matter. And so that can also be through, you know, I would say not just uh, modest fashion, but through fashion in general that I think that, you know, which is often not taken so seriously when it comes to pol the research on politics and solidarity. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, um, in terms of studying social media today, it needs to be looked at more carefully because we can understand more nuanced and complicated understandings of uh, Muslim women by looking closer at um, these uh, social media platforms. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I think social media has been um, so beneficial to especially communities that have historically been marginalized from media or who are even, you know, of course, dispersed across large geographic areas. So being able to connect with one another. And I think what you said was key was also social media as a space for where Muslim women could create their own narratives, right? About who they are, how they want to represent themselves to the world. And, you know, of course, negotiating identity in the process, um, both, as you mentioned, kind of locally, but also globally, right? These global networks. And so I'm wondering in your research, um, were there any specific themes that you saw as far as Muslim women as they were presenting themselves on social media. I know the modest fashion is kind of one piece of that, um, but did you see any specific, I guess, narratives that they were pushing back against or even reclaiming or reframing? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that you see on social media is this, when you think about reclaiming or reframing, is uh, challenging the narrative that Muslim women are reduced to hijab, right? Because um, even in the United States, um, you know, only about 50% of Muslim women wear the hijab. And if you look at, you know, I don't believe there's been a recent global study on that. I think that would be a little challenging, but, you know, but challenging the notion that Muslim women are reduced to hijab. You see that on social media, because if you follow um, the hashtag modest fashion, you know, it's not just hijab that comes up. It's Muslim women, you know, some of them 
showing their hair, but wearing long sleeves, you know, and interpreting modest fashion in multiple ways. If it means, you know, um, showing your hair, but wearing long sleeves or, you know, not covering your hair, but wear, you know, um, wearing more modest makeup or modest jewelry, you know, there's like all these different ways that it can still be modest without necessarily wearing hijab. And so I think two things in terms of reclaiming the narrative, right? A, first of all, that hijab is worn in many different ways. Um, you know, when we think about traditional hijab in the United States, a lot of that comes from the influence of um, era of North, uh, North African or Middle Eastern um, understandings of um, how hijab was worn, you know, from early immigrants coming over in the 1970s and 1980s. But even in terms of how hijab is worn, um, um, there's a lot of different ways that now um, women are covering their hair. As I, I mentioned, the dupatta in terms of South Asian women. Um, there's a Suad Kabir's research on um, her book was called Muslim Cool on Black Muslim Women in Chicago. And you see how um, South Asian, particularly Indian and Pakistani American women often appropriate that way of covering their hair. But then the second important theme is that modest faction often includes Muslim women who do not cover their hair, right? And you see that parallel, I would argue, argue in terms of looking further out, even outside of Islam, if you look at modest fashion um, amongst Christians in terms of Mormons or evangelical Christians, or you look at modest fashion within Judaism, specifically Orthodox Judaism, you, you see that there is modest fashion in Christianity and Judaism. And it doesn't always, it doesn't necessarily mean covering your hair, but it means, you know, often covering your shoulders and your knees and dressing modestly and loosely. Um, and so I think that's an important piece of studying modest fashion online, because when I started looking at um, social media, I did start by looking at the hashtag modest fashion. And I saw that it wasn't just Muslim women who came up, it was Christian and Jewish women as well. And I think that's really interesting and important in terms of thinking about how we can um, demystify what hijab is, as well as, you know, challenge some of these stereotypes of, you know, modest fashion being oppressive. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think you bring up a very Im important point because we see, as you mentioned, in a variety of different communities, there are different modesty norms. Um, and, you know, maybe we think those are quote unquote normal, right? Uh, but when it comes to hijab, I think folks do um, oftentimes look at it as um, something that is an oddity or is oppressive, but across cultures um, and different, you know, religious cultures in particular, we see a variety of different modesty norms. Um, and so it is, you know, very similar to ex the examples that you gave and shouldn't necessarily been be seen as, you know, something different than or something or an oddity, right? Um, it is, in fact, very normal, very normal indeed. Um, you mentioned another piece about how social media has allowed, in this case, of course, Muslim women to really tell their own stories. And I think that's so key in folks, again, being, being able to reclaim or reframe, you know, different aspects of their community or just of their personal lives. And I'm wondering in thinking about um, you know, the different social media platforms that you in particular were, uh, were looking at, um, if there were any specific trends um, that you saw among Muslim women um, influencers as they're thinking about uh, different ways to tell their story or the different key pieces that maybe have been highlighted over the course of your research. I mean, well, I think one of the things that um, that we have seen is that modest fashion has entered couture, right? And so if we think, uh, and I think a lot of the modest um, fashion influencers, right, 
or, um, or micro celebrities have really latched onto that. So if we're thinking about, you know, the last, you know, runway show, or we're thinking about the, in the last three years when Nike, Macy's have, you know, had um, campaigns where they've had um, an athlete or a model wearing hijab, that's something that we've seen, right? And so that's why in some ways, if we look at global modest fashion, we can say that it's, you know, there is some high fashion there that, and I think that has, you know, become more, um, uh, more visible in the last five years. And, you know, and so that's something that we've definitely seen online. And we see that even in terms of these big fashion houses like Gucci, um, you know, um, showing that. And so I think the influencers, you know, they, they actually really um, have taken to that. And so, I mean, what's interesting about that, though, as somebody who's studying this and coming to this as a sociologist of gender and race and feminist theory, though, is, you know, there's positives and negatives to that, right? Because when this gets kind of co-opted by these um, global corporations and these fashion houses, right? Sometimes we continue to see the same themes that have historically shaped fashion and specifically colorism and fat phobia. And so some of those earliest campaigns in terms of looking at modest fashion that were global, definitely we still saw very thin, you know, bodies and um, very light skin, especially going into some of the very wealthy um, markets like um, globally. And so, you know, so these things are still there. There are a few, um, you know, Instagram, um, I would say celebrities that are now breaking through those barriers. And now we are seeing some darker skinned, um, uh, you know, modest um, fashion influencers, as well as uh, larger, or even I would, I hate to use some, sometimes even say larger normal size, you know, and I think that's, and those are interesting in terms of thinking about this kind of, I would say somewhat of like a contradiction, because on the one hand, modest fashion represents this uh, marginalized population of fashion. But on the other hand, if modest fashion is going to reinforce colorism, and, you know, uh, you know, uh, fat phobia, we have to kind of think about, you know, the role that corporations or hegemonic uh, dominant gender norms are playing in terms of these markets as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Well, you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM, and we'll be right back after this break. I'm Sanaa, and I'm joined today by Dr. Farah Turnaker, Professor of Sociology and Director of the Gender and Women's Studies at LeMoyne College in Syracuse, New York. And we've been talking about Muslim women and modest fashion. And before the break, you mentioned how in the past, um, you know, three or four years, we've seen um, hijab and modest fashion really enter into high fashion, as well as even, as you mentioned, like a Nike or a Macy's as well, featuring uh, models um, or spokespeople who wear hijab. And I'm wondering, you know, how does this impact um, appropriation, as you kind of, you know, alluded to, and what does that look like? And how might we or how should we be thinking about modest fashion and maybe hijab in particular, as it comes to cultural appropriation? Oh, well, you've opened up a can of worms with cultural appropriation. <laughs> I don't know if you had seen the controversy. I think it was um, maybe a few weeks ago on TikTok with the um, 
balaclava that some uh, some young um, folks were wearing, and there was this whole controversy of you know um, you cover when we cover our hair in the winter or our face in the winter because it's so cold, and how that's become really trendy in the last I guess maybe since November. You know, everyone wants to follow that trend because you know a young white person is wearing it to cover their hair and their face. But on the other hand, when a brown or black uh, Muslim woman is wearing hijab or niqab or burqa, you know, it's often, you know, um, really ostracized. And so, um, you know, so there are questions around cultural appropriation. I feel like those questions are happening right now, literally, you know, as I said, because this was a very recent TikTok controversy in terms of when, you know, when, when, or even when a white model wears hijab on the Paris runway, how then that all of a sudden is seen as couture, but when we see a brown or black Muslim woman wearing it, you know, and uh, wearing the hijab in Chicago, you know, how that's seen as, you know, as, uh, as that's looked down on, right? And she's discriminated against because she's covering her hair. And so I think, you know, as, as I think that discussion, that conversation is literally happening right now and is ongoing. And because we're seeing these debates happen on TikTok, as well as on our streets in the United States, as well as in terms of the global political climate. Um, so I think that's a to be continued, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, but we have to ask the question, yes, when somebody who's white um, wears it on the runway or wears it, you know, covers their hair and face um, in the winter. And as a, as a young trendsetter on TikTok, why is that something that's sought after but when a brown or black Muslim woman wears the hijab or burqa or niqab, um, he, you know, here, um, and, and, you know, every day, that's something that, you know, we discriminate against. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, you know, I, I'm thinking back, of course, to um, when Kim Kardashian, you know, showed up, right, completely covered. And that was another kind of, yes. I guess, recent inflection point yes. in this ongoing conversation. Um, yes. Of course, Kardashians being very famous for cultural appropriation. Yes, no, and that's interesting because when we take famous people, um, I believe it was um, Gigi Haddad who wore the hijab on the cover of Vogue um, Arabia, and um, she, you know, she is of you know Middle Eastern descent, and when she wore the hijab on the cover of Vogue, she actually had a backlash against her, you know, um, because you know they want her to dress Western, and I'm sorry, that was a couple of years ago, um, but yeah, but when Kim Kardashian wears it as couture, you know, I think she was mocked a bit on social media. Yeah, but you know, of course, the camera still loved her, and you know, the paparazzi, and she still got you know a lot of press out of that. Mm -hmm. Of course, of course, yeah. I mean, on one hand, um, there is you know maybe more visibility for hijab, right, and and maybe sparking some of these conversations in a way that might be constructive. But of course, on the other hand, there is this matter of cultural appropriation. And again, as you you know clearly laid out what the costs are for black and brown folks who wear hijab versus when it's on a runway and when it's on white bodies, you know, white, thin, you know, um, yeah. women. And so it is very different. Yes, definitely. Yes. So I am wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, what were your motivations or inspirations into this line of research? Yeah. So, you know, I actually, so this, the book that just came out in November, you know, 
um, you know, is intersectionality in South Asian Muslim American women beyond hijab and halal. And with this project that I started working on in 2015, I was really interested in um, doing research on Muslim women in the United States. But as I said, beyond hijab and halal, I actually wanted to look at other ways that Muslim women represent themselves. And so that subtitle beyond hijab and halal, you know, showed that, you know, um, you know, less than half the women that I interviewed for this project actually wore hijab, but talked about how they still um, maintain modesty norms. And so I kind of wanted to get away from this idea that Muslim women are equated with hijab and that how we can study Muslim women can include modest fashion, but not necessarily, right? Essentialized modest fashion does not equal hijab. But secondly, what are some of the other ways that we can understand Muslim women? And so I also looked at um, practices around Muslim women in America in terms of food, right? Thinking mm -hmm. not just beyond hijab, but beyond halal. How is food an important way that South Asia women maintain identity, that Muslim women main, maintain identity. And of course, if we think about Muslim women or Asian American um, women in the United States, you know, food is a really important aspect of both religious as well as ethnic identity for immigrants, you know, very, and I think that is just a very rich, um, rich, rich area of study. And then um, thirdly, um, social media, you know, and that, you know, that was really the newer area of research as I've done um, some research previously on modest fashion um, several years ago, as well as food. But then I also wanted to look at how do Muslim women represent themselves in terms of social media, not just in terms of fashion and in terms of, you know, what they look like, but also in terms of, you know, a platform for politics in terms of political solidarity. And I started my interviews, you know, in 2015 doing this research. And then in 2016, um, when Donald Trump became president, you know, a lot of the questions I was asking, I was asking before, um, often, you know, changed and during that time in terms of um, thinking about xenophobia and Islamophobia in particular. So this research actually became a lot more political than I had, you know, initially predicted it would. And so talking about politics um, directly to Muslim women when he was president and then continuing some of this conversation as I was doing my discourse analysis of social media. Um, you know, I finished up this book manuscript right when COVID started. And so the postscript in the book is really about, you know, COVID um, and what it meant to be spending this time with Muslim American women when we're having three pandemics, right? COVID, the racial justice pandemic, as well as the mental health pandemic. And thinking a lot about what does that mean um, in terms of Muslim women and um, as and as you already mentioned, you know, because a significant portion of American Muslim women are Asian American, the solidarity that they have with um, Asian Americans who were the victims of hate crimes, specifically um, large populations of Chinese, Japanese, Korean Americans, and then the solidarity that they had with, um, you know, African Americans. Um, I think was also an important part of this research and thinking about how social media is an important way for me to continue to study, you know, um, uh, beyond uh, hijab in terms of thinking about modest fashion, but it's also an important way to look at the discourse analysis of visual representation in terms of political solidarity, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and I think there's been a lot done on, on politics and Twitter in the last really um, more than a decade now, but looking, starting to look closer at some of the visual representation presentation that you can see on um, Instagram now and now, you know, continuing to look at other folks continue to looking at TikTok and even newer modes of analyses. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, 
as far as you know, continuing kind of this line of research, um, are you still actively looking at kind of these political representations in social media, or is there something else that you're kind of turning your attention to? Yeah, so I have, I'm working on two projects, one small and one large. So the smaller project, as I, you mentioned earlier, um, or, you know, starting to work on an article looking at um, colorism. And I think when you look at colorism, not just in terms of Muslim women, but Asian American women, African American women, Latinx America, uh, American women, um, you start to see how that is political because colorism is shaped by white supremacy as well as intersects with the legacies of colonialism and patriarchy. And so that in itself, I think just looking at colorism within fashion um, and specifically modest fashion, as well as um, um, thinking about how, you know, this actually materializes in, so in social media is going to continue to think about how we can interrogate, um, you know, our global politics as well as colonialism with patriarchy and white supremacy in terms of how that continues to reproduce, um, you know, a lot of these um, hegemonic understandings of beauty norms, you know. Um, so, you know, so the, the project on colorism, I think, will continue to really engage with politics in terms of representation. And, and I'm hoping that will intersect with the newer line of research I want to do on fat phobia. So that's an article I'm working on. And then a, a larger narrative that I'm working on is going back to some of the earlier work I did on um, uh, immigrant women and food and thinking about memoirs um, and thinking about telling the story of really like the generation of women that came over in the 1970s and 1980s as they start to get older. Um, looking at, um, I'm going to be looking at actually Muslim communities in Florida in terms of looking at that first generation of Muslim women and how they helped create community. And so, you know, you know, going, and I think, you know, a lot of the research on Muslim women and Muslim communities, especially in the social sciences, has looked at larger cities like Chicago, New York City, um, um, as well as, you know, Michigan because of the large Arab American population. But there haven't been that many large scale, um, you know, studies done of, you know, looking at some of these um, smaller places in Florida, Georgia, even where you are, Tennessee, like the South. And so, um, because I think the assumption was that those communities weren't as large or as diverse, but what we're finding out is they actually are, right? And they're really interesting melting pots of Asian, Asian American Muslims, as well as uh, Arab and Black Muslims. Mm -hmm. Yes, I always love to see research, um, you know, coming down to the South, especially on some of these, like you mentioned, some of these communities or, or just topics that we typically investigate through maybe a very West Coast, East Coast, or, you know, kind of bigger metropolitan areas lens. Um, but as you mentioned, so many of these processes, but also these groups are, you know, in the South as well. And there is a specific kind of regional um, dimension at play. Um, so I'm, I will be looking forward to, to this next project of yours. Thank you so much. Yes. Well, I know we are almost at the end of our time together this morning, um, but I wanted to give you the opportunity if there were some kind of final thoughts um, that you wanted to leave our audience with today. Um, I think my final thoughts are, you know, thinking about um, my own research in terms of American Muslim women and representation. Um, representation matters, I think. And I think this is, you know, this is not a new theme. You know, we've seen this from other Asian American women, Black women, um, 
Indigenous, Latinx women talking about representation increasing in terms of popular culture and social media. But I think, you know, the theme that I'm really interested in seeing is letting these women, of, having women of color um, have a seat at the table to depict more complicated, sophisticated, as well as realistic you know, um, portrayals of themselves. And I think that's what I'm hoping that we're gonna, we started to see a little bit of in the last couple of years, you know, um, in terms of Muslim uh, South Asian women, but also as well as in terms of um, black women, Arab American, Asian American women with um, them being able to tell these stories. And that's something that as I think about, you know, my future research in the South interviewing Muslim American women in Florida is, you know, letting them tell the stories because both in terms of thinking about Hollywood as well as academia, if we look at the early scholarship as well as the early movies and television, you know, these stories were largely told by both white scholars as well as white um, filmmakers and white writers and white directors. And so I would love to see both, you know, so, you know, sociologists like ourselves, you know, being able to be the first ones to publish the article on the diaspora or these immigrant stories, as well as continue to have more women of color have a seat at the table in terms of telling the stories that come out of Hollywood or television that we're streaming. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Turnaker, thank you so much for being here with us this morning. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you again to Dr. Farah Turnaker for joining us this morning. She is the author of the book Intersectionality in the Muslim South Asian American Middle Class, Lifestyle Consumption Beyond Halal and Hijab. What a great conversation. You know, I think it's so important for us to get outside of these very limited constructions that we might often see of Islam or of Muslims. And I just love how Dr. Turnaker really showed us and told us who Muslims are in the U.S. And I think it's just so important for us to continue to expand our understanding of our Muslim neighbors. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the show here in Memphis, we have about 20,000 Muslim residents. And there's also the Memphis Dawah Association uh, in Whitehaven. So I think there are plenty of opportunities for us to build connections cross-culturally and across religions. And I think this conversation conversation with Dr. Turner Kerr was just one way for us to kind of start this shared understanding um, within our own community. So again, thank you so much to her for joining us this morning. For today's positive note, I want to leave you with this quote that says, you make a life out of what you have, not what you're missing. And I love that. It's all about perspective. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee here on WYXR 91.7 FM. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Sanaa. And maybe if you came to the conversation late or you just want to listen again, remember you can always catch the replay on WYXR.org or subscribe to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format. It's available on all podcast streaming platforms. I cannot wait to have you back here next Monday morning. See you then.